Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has provided for us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the light has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. I have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, we are given an irreversible gift, the gift of eternal life, and that we can never lose that, and that it is ours forever. Regeneration, justification, are irreversible processes. And once we trust in Christ, nothing we do can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. However, when we sin, it breaches fellowship. Scripture uses phrases such as quenching the spirit or grieving the spirit. And so we are to go to the Lord by, in confession to admit or acknowledge our sins to him. And at that instant, we are completely and totally forgiven. Scripture says our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west, and God will remember them no more. They are not an issue in our fellowship. Fellowship is restored, forward advance is resumed, and God the Holy Spirit continues his sanctifying ministry in our lives. So let's bow our heads together for silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have your grace to rely upon, that our salvation is not based on who we are, what we do. Our salvation is based on who Jesus Christ is, what he has done on the cross, that it is your love that provided such a perfect salvation, a salvation that was not dependent in any way upon us, that on the cross Jesus Christ paid a perfect and sufficient price for the sins of the world. And that in that redemptive work, not only is our salvation secured, but it also provides for the complete reversal of the curse brought into creation by sin. Now, Father, as we study about your wonderful work of redemption and Christ our Redeemer, we pray that our understanding of our so great salvation will be expanded and we will have greater appreciation for all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that we are as regenerated humanity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> We're studying in Revelation chapter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. 
primarily this morning in verse 9. Verse 8 sets up the, uh, sets up the specific incident in this scene, which leads to the singing of a new song in verse 9. And that is what we will focus on today, is the content of this particular song. Now, this last week, I had several different conversations with different individuals about what seemingly were disparate topics and asked about some different questions. But one of the things that sort of ran through each of these conversations has to do with the distinctiveness of the kind of ministry that we have here at West Houston Bible Church. A number of times we have visitors or new folks who've been here for maybe a month or two or or just brand new this morning, and they kind of wonder, what makes West Houston Bible Church different? Sometimes you may be asked that question by people. Uh, what makes your church different from uh, other churches in Houston? And we do have a, a firm distinctive, a couple of distinctives, but they all flow out of a philosophy of ministry. Now, a lot of times people don't understand what a philosophy of ministry really is, what that entails. I was talking earlier uh, this week in a conversation with my good friend Tommy Ice, who's a professor up at, uh, up at Liberty uh, University and Seminary, and we were just reflecting upon the, a lot of the changes that have taken place among conservative evangelical, broad term, evangelical churches in the last 20 years. And he was talking about uh, going out and looking for a church some 10 years or so ago, and I remember those conversations, how frustrated he was, how alarmed he was at the trends, the shifts that had already taken place in most Bible churches and in many evangelical churches. And the question that, that he was asked most frequently was, what is your philosophy of ministry? He wasn't probed about what do you believe on certain doctrines? Have you read our doctrinal statement? Do you agree with everything? Would you explain to us what you mean by substitutionary atonement? Would you explain your understanding of the spiritual life and the dynamics of the spiritual life? Or what are your views on prophecy or the rapture, things like this? Whereas uh, a decade or two decades earlier and for uh, time all, uh, stretching all the way back to the founding of the church and AD 33, doctrine was the primary issue whenever a congregation would interview a pastor. But now there's this assumption that, well, you've been to seminary, it's okay, everything's fine, we all basically agree on the same thing, we're not going to get too technical on any doctrine, because the more technical you become, the more narrow you become, the more narrow you become, the fewer people will come, and after all, it's all about getting people. So what's your philosophy of ministry? And, of course, as soon as you get into that, you start hitting the application, really, of the doctrine that you do have. And a lot of people just don't understand that, that you can go to any number of churches in this city and they will have a doctrinal statement that is somewhat similar. But in some cases, they their practice really mitigates against what they claim they believe, especially if they believe in the su- sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, for others, they just don't really care about their doctrinal statement so much anymore, and nobody knows quite where it is. It's somewhere back in the files in the office. Maybe we'll find it one day. But, you know, we all generally agree on the same thing, and, and uh, that's good enough. 
and the, the issue is philosophy of ministry. But see, a philosophy of ministry flows out of your understanding of the nature of the spiritual life. It flows out of your understanding of the nature of the church. Let me give you a basic example. We believe, and I believe, that the basic model for the local church in the scriptures is a model based on education and not on fellowship. It's based on education. We base our emphasis on passages like uh, John chapter 21 when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. He doesn't say, if you love me, you'll build a church. If you love me, you'll do evangelism. If you love me, you will uh, go to the hospital and visit everybody. He says, if you love me, you'll feed the sheep. doesn't say, if you love me, you'll sing praise choruses for 35 or 40 minutes and have a little sermonette for Christianettes. It doesn't say any of that. It says, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. Ephesians 4, 10 and 11 talks about the gifted men that God has given the church, pastor, uh, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers, apostles and prophets went off the scene at the end of the first century. All we have today is evangelists and pastors and teachers who are given to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. See, the pastor is an equipper. He is a trainer. He is to train people how to what? Think biblically so that they can deal with the issues of life from a biblical framework. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. And the word there for, for world isn't cosmos, world system. It's ionos, meaning the spirit of the age, the thinking of the age, the trends, the uh, all of the different fads that come along that affect the culture, the unbelieving culture at large, and that always seem to impact the church. So when you combine these passages together, that we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your emotions. Oh, wait a minute. It doesn't say that, does it? Be transformed by the, by the renewing of your mind. It's thinking. Well, nobody today wants to think. They all just want to emote or feel good or, or be stimulated in some way because, after all, there's no meaning in life because we've all bought into some form of Darwinism and some form of post-millennialism, if there's no meaning in life, the only way I can have any sense of fulfillment, any sense of significance, is to be stimulated in some way. And just think about how that's impacted the media. You go to a movie today, and it's all about special effects and music, which stimulates, and you go back and you look at a you know, good Clark Gable movie, or you go back and you look at a good Cary Grant movie back in the 30s or some of the old Thin Man movies, and all of a sudden you realize it's all about the character development and the plot, and there's very little special effects, but there's great dialogue and great content there. And so this worldview shift to postmodernism affects the very way we respond to media. And so the same thing happens within the church where there's this emphasis on stimulation and fun. After all, you know, bring the kids to church. They're going to have a great time. They're going to sing lots of songs. They're going to have lots of fun. No, yes, bring the parents too because they'll have fun as well. See, the purpose of the church isn't to have fun. The purpose of the local church is to teach people, to train people in the Word of God 
so that they can think biblically. And if you're not thinking biblically, you can't impact a culture as salt and light, which is what Jesus said. So the focus is learning how to think, which means you have to be involved in, in study. And it can't be superficial study. People will never grow beyond the level of the teaching that they're exposed to. And if all of you're exposed to is extremely shallow, basic, superficial uh, study of the Word, then you won't ever get beyond nursery school. If all you get is a nursery school instruction, then you're never going to make it to the fifth grade or seventh grade or co- high school or college. And yet the assumption in most churches is that that's what needs to take place on Sunday morning in order to attract more people, is you just keep it as basic and as simple as you possibly can and somehow let the untrained, non-theologically educated Sunday school teachers carry the burden of really teaching people how to understand the Scriptures and how to grow spiritually. And the pastor's job is just to be... You know, a promoter, he leads a pep rally for Jesus on Sunday morning and gets everybody all encouraged, and that's the focus. It's exhortational, you might say, that the, pep, that the, that the philosophy of preaching is a philosophy that is exhortational. Let's, let's encourage everybody, and if you listen to standard approaches to preaching in most preaching classes, you will hear ideas that you know, teach for about 15 or 20 minutes, but focus on application. People need to know, you know, okay, how does this affect my life? I was asked that question this last week. Well, how do you structure your messages so that people have understand application? I said, I don't really do this artificial uh, t- 15 minutes of exposition and t- 10 minutes of application kind of format, which is so typical, or give a point, exegete that, or exposit that, explain it, and then show the application. I believe that if you teach the Word of God in detail, that God the Holy Spirit is going to make it clear how to apply it, because there are folks over here that are very much advanced in their spiritual life compared to some folks over here. There are some folks over here that are involved with all kinds of life situations that have nothing to do with the kind of life situations these folks have. And if I try to, and if I've got a church of 300 or 400 people listening to me, it gets even more complex. There's so many different areas. How can I think that I possibly can structure things so, uh, with enough illustration so that everybody, everybody gets it? Just, it's more this boiling everything down to the lowest common denominator mentality which is dumbed down our own culture. I believe that if you teach the word in detail and explain the contrast between what the divine viewpoint principles in scripture are in contrast to the kinds of thinking that are going on in the world today and that we've all absorbed from the spirit of the age, that it becomes clear to us what the scripture is is saying. And sometimes it takes time to develop any kind of substantive thought. You don't have uh, in-depth thought transformation on the basis of 15 or 20-minute homilies, which is what you get in many kinds of situations. And you have to think about things. One of my favorite stories, I've told you all this before, and I'll tell you it again, is, and I don't even know if it's factual anymore, but it's a great story, is that J. Vernon McGee, who was well-known, he went to be with the Lord about 10 or 12 years ago, I believe, and he was quite a, a crusty old curmudgeon. I think he was that way when he was a young man. 
because uh, one, of, one of my other favorite stories about him was that he did his first year of seminary at Union Theological Seminary in Virginia, which was a liberal Presbyterian seminary, and he didn't quite go along with that. He was already a conservative dispensationalist, wanted to go to a seminary that really taught the Word, but he understood grace. He said, this has got to be a school that understands grace. Now, J. Vernon McGee got his accent, that unique accent of his, if you've listened to him, because he grew up in Waxahachie, Texas. And this was back in the early 30s, in the time of the Depression, and he heard there was this small new seminary up in Dallas, Texas, that had a... um, uh, that was emphasizing the Bible and emphasizing grace. And he had read a few things by uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer, the founder and president of Dallas Seminary. So he decided to go up there and apply, but he wanted to make sure they were grace-oriented. So he went out and he bought the biggest cigar that he could find, lit it up, and walked into Stern's Hall, puffing on this big cigar, wanting to make sure that nobody was legalistic. <laughs> well, some years later, after he had become... Fairly well known, he was a pastor at Church of the Open Door for many years in downtown Los Angeles, and as one of the premier graduates of Dallas Seminary, he was frequently invited back to speak at different functions. So he was invited back to speak in chapel in the early 70s. Now, chapel was required of all students at Dallas. It was 30 minutes. It was, you know, we'd sing a hymn, there'd be one or two announcements, and then there would be about a 20-minute message dealing with different different aspects of different passages of scripture. Some were more devotional, some were a little better in terms of study. It was a a real mixed bag. So he arrived and he had his message prepared and just prior to coming to chapel, someone uh, informed him that he had about 20 minutes. This was right before things started and so this little aggravated him a little bit. So when he, after he was introduced and got up to uh, begin to speak, He said, you know, I was just informed that I only have 20 minutes to speak this morning. You can't say anything significant about the Word of God in 20 minutes, so let's close in prayer. (laughs) You just have to love a man like that. And that's true, that if you are going to develop any kind of significant thinking, where you're going from some place where you have been before and logically develop an understanding that takes you someplace new and begins to challenge your thinking a little bit, it takes more than 15 or 20 minutes. You can't just assume people know the story of, uh, of uh, uh, Joshua or the story of Jephthah or the story of uh, Meher Shalal Hashbaz or anybody else in the Old Testament just because they've been sitting in church for 10 or 15 years. And you can't assume that people read their Bible on a regular basis. And it used to be that if you were a if you were a Christian in this country, you regularly read your Bible. You'd have family time at night, and father would sit down and open the Bible after dinner and would read a passage of Scripture. This was normative, even among uh, more liberal uh, households. A hundred years ago, people knew the Bible. Now, very few people even know what a Bible looks like. Or what's in there? I mean, numerous people don't even know what the Ten Commandments are. They're against them, but they've never <laughs> they've never read them. So we have a philosophy of ministry that focuses on studying, focuses on exposing what the Word of God says in all of its detail. Because I believe that it's only when we study a subject, a doctrine, a topic in detail that we really begin to see 
what God has said, what God has done, so that it begins to change our thinking. Another aspect involves a certain amount of repetition. That's how we learn anything, is that ongoing training. If you play piano, how many times did you practice over and over again playing certain pieces until you master it. I remember when I had piano lessons when I was in elementary, junior high, and even into high school, every morning I had to get up and spend 30 minutes practicing. And later on, you know, different instruments. If you're dancing, if you're in any field of endeavor, you have to practice over and over again. It's not not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. So we have to have that ongoing uh, repetition, hear things that are somewhat familiar because we never know when we just might get challenged to hear something uh, a little different. So that's our philosophy of ministry. That makes us distinct. On top of that, we're distinct because when it comes to the singing of the body of Christ that gathers together, the singing of the local church in praise to God, we have not been caught up with the current fads of contemporary Christian music because that, as I've demonstrated in lessons I taught back in, uh, back in February and March, is most of the contemporary music comes out of a philosophy of the church and a philosophy of music that has been influenced by modern uh, existentialism and modern trends in music that are uh, somewhat non-biblical, come out of a worldview that is not grounded in a biblical view of creation and worship. So that makes us distinctive. We go to the Bible to see our precedent for everything in life, and music is one of those things. And what we see in Revelation in conjunction with passages such as Job 38, 4 through 7, which talk about the angels singing together for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth, is that we discover that music and its forms began in heaven and are only shared with mankind as a creation that comes after the angels. And so we get a glimpse of the kind of singing and the kinds of lyrics that go on in heavenly singing. We have been given the great privilege of sharing in music, but music has its origin in heaven, not on earth. And when we all get to heaven, just as an addendum to my study that I did on music a few years ago, we recognize that there are different cultural uh, <clears throat> manifestations of music, uh, you think of different types of Asian music or Indian music or African music, uh, different kinds of rock or grunge rock or contemporary things, whatever you have going on today. But you see, when we all get to heaven and we're all gathered around the throne, as we see in Revelation 4 and 5, are we going to be singing music that is akin to uh, Asian music or African music or... Uh, grunge rock? You think we're going to be singing acid rock or rock and roll? What do you think this is going to be like? See, culture can be corrupted by man's carnal rebellion against God, and that produces different uh, types of music in different ways. There's only going to be one kind of music and singing in heaven, and it's not going to be shallow or superficial. So we see an evidence of this in Revelation 
chapter 5. Now, just for review, this chapter picks up and continues to describe the scene in heaven that John came to in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, when he is called up into heaven. Come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And he sees the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the angels around the throne of God singing praise to him in chapter uh, 4. And then chapter 5, we get into the action. He says there's one on the throne. This is God the Father. His right hand, there is a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. We've studied that. This is like a title deed. It's a legal document. This is typical of a such a document in this time in ancient Rome that they would take wills and title deeds and contracts and seal them with seven seals. And then we're told the action that takes place. And we, by the time we get down to verse 6, the um, John says, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. It looks like it's had a fatal wound, but nevertheless it's standing strong, upright, and it is alive. And this, of course, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the second person of the Trinity uh, as a lamb, one of the most common symbols of the Lord Jesus Christ used some 29 times in the book of Revelation. It is a small pet lamb is the word that is used here for, for a lamb. And it speaks of him with all the qualities of deity. He has omnipotent seven horns. Seven eyes represent the fullness of his knowledge and his relationship to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And he comes forward, takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And in verse 8 we read, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb and began to worship the Lamb, indicating again his deity for no one less than God would be worshipped by the creatures. The four living creatures are a category of angels similar to seraphim and cherubim. The 24 elders are the representatives of the, uh, of the resurrected, raptured, rewarded church. We studied that last time. They each have a harp that is a cathara, which is a ancient lyre, very typical instrument used in the psalms as accompaniment to the music as they would sing the psalms and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and typically going back into the old testament that this symbol has been used of incense being burned and as the smoke ascends this is viewed as a picture of how our prayers ascend before the throne of god So this is the imagery that we have here. And in verse 9 we read, And they sang a new song, a collective pronoun indicating both parts of this choir, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And they say, You are worthy, the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, last time we did some detailed work on this. I pointed out that there is a textual problem that occurs among the manuscripts. That just means that there are some differences in the wording in different Greek manuscripts. And I had a chart that I gave out, and we went through some of the detail last week. 
to show that in the manuscript tradition behind the King James Version, which is known as the Textus Receptus, it had one reading. In the critical text, that is a typical Greek text that most uh, scholars use, the UBS text or NA27, has a slightly different uh, reading. But it's based, and this is the reading you find in NIV, NASB, NET Bible, those. And if you have one of those, your Bible doesn't say you have redeemed us to God. It says you have redeemed uh, to God men. And it's in italics because the word men isn't in any ancient manuscript at all. And to boil it all down, what we saw was that in one ancient manuscript, which is called the Codex A or Vaticanus, there is uh, the absence of the us pronoun, that first-person plural pronoun, is not located in one of these uh, fourth-century manuscripts. However, it is in almost every other manuscript. Its exact location may be before or after the word for God, but it's there in all other manuscripts. And just because it's missing from one, these scholars who collate things and create these critical texts, decided, well, it must not have been in the original. They put so much weight on the value of this one manuscript that they left it out, and that changes the meaning of the text. We're we're talking about a heavenly choir where on one side you have the four living creatures singing and antiphonally with the main uh, choir, which is the 24 elders. The 24 elders are singing this. It shows that they are raptured, redeemed saints. For they talk to the lamb and say, you were slain, you have redeemed us. That us could not refer to angels because angels were not redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a reference to their uh, their humanity. They sing a new song. Now this is interesting. I had several people ask me this when I did our study on music. And there are apparently those out there in contemporary uh, the contemporary Christian music scene who say that what this means is that every generation has to sing a song that is in tune with their generation's music. There has to be new music in every generation. That's how they interpret this. And this phrase, new song, is found a number of times in the Scripture. We have to understand this because you may hear this. Somebody may say, we're not going to sing those old hymns. We've got to sing new songs. Well, that's not what this means at all. It's a, it's a phrase used a number of times. The word kainos, which is a word translated new here, means new as in recent, uh, something that was unknown previously. It is a uh, counterpart to the Old Testament word that's used here, chadash, meaning something new or fresh. And we find the phrase new song in several passages in the Old Testament. I've listed those there on the screen, Psalm 33, 3, Psalm 40, verse 4, Psalm 96, 1, Psalm 98, 1, Psalm 144, 9, and Psalm 149, 1. It's used one time in Isaiah 42, verse 10 as well. In each of these cases, the idea is of something uh, new, not in the sense of something new for a new generation, but in the context 
It is something new because there has been a new manifestation or new revelation of God's person or character. There has been some fresh work of God in the history of Israel that calls upon them to write a new psalm to memorialize this new event in history where God has been gracious to them. So it is not the idea of we have to have a new kind of music, but because God's mercies are new every morning, same word, Hadash, uh, Hadash here, that we have in Lamentations 3, 21 to 23. This I recall to mind, therefore have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, new. There are new manifestations of God's grace in our lives from year to year, from week to week, and as this happens, it brings an occasion for the songwriter to write new hymns that reflect new demonstrations of God's grace and his power. New hymns of praise should be written memorializing and reflecting on these new mercies, not new kinds of music, not uh, going into a new generation. Then we come to the content of the song. I think it's important to look at the words that are written. There's a development of thought here that's based upon an understanding of key important doctrines. begins with a focus on the Lamb. You are worthy, uh, they sing. The word worthy there is the Greek word axios. Axios has the idea of someone that is competent, someone who is qualified for a particular role, Something, one who is appropriate to the task, uh, deserving, entitled, or suitable. Those are the ideas. In other words, someone who meets certain uh, qualifications, they have been evaluated, and they have passed the evaluation exam. They are now qualified to engage in a particular role. So he, it begins by focusing on the fact that the lamb is worthy. Now, remember, there was this search that took place back in verse Two, where the strong angel came forth and said, Who is worthy, who's competent, who's qualified to open the scroll? And a search took place on heaven and on the earth. Throughout all of creation there is this search and no one is qualified. And, and it is so, uh, so, uh, so damning and so scary for the Apostle John because he recognizes that this scroll is going to bring about the final judgment of sin and evil. And so... Uh, afraid that there might not be anyone who can resolve the problem of evil in the universe. He begins to weep. He is uh, rebuked by one of the elders. Don't weep because the Lion of Judah, notice the juxtaposition in these images, the Lion of Judah is, uh, and, uh, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is worthy to open the scroll, the only one in the universe because of his distinct work on the cross. And that's the second line. For you were slain. See, that word that's translated for means because. It's a Greek word, hati, and it means because. He's giving a reason why he is worthy. He's not worthy because... He is just the God-man. He's not worthy because uh, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's not worthy because of his omnipotence or omniscience. All of that is part of it. He is 
worthy because he was slain. That directs our attention uh, to his humanity, to that element of his hypostatic union, the union of full undiminished deity with true humanity in one person forever. It's because of what he did in his humanity in going to the cross, and on the cross he was slain. This is the Greek word svazo, meaning to kill, to slaughter, to slay, and it's usually used of the sacrifice uh, or ritual slaying of an animal. So it directs our attention to this imagery of the lamb who was sacrificed. I pointed out passages like uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 7, talking about the Lord is our Passover, taking our imagery all the way back into the Old Testament, understanding that it is the Old Testament that gives meaning and content to these New Testament uh, ideas. You know, one of the other things that makes us distinctive here is the kind of training we want to give our children. In, in, in prep school, children need to know how to think biblically. They need to understand the events of Scripture. And as we see and as we've studied so many times, when we get into the Scripture, that these major doctrines aren't just abstract ideas, atonement, redemption, propitiation, but they are tied to... Old Testament events, there are concrete uh, incidents and illustrations in the Old Testament to help us understand the importance of these uh, doctrines. So what we try to do is to take the kids, we had a meeting this last week, uh, Mark and uh, Ike and I, just talking about where we're going with the curriculum, how are we, uh, are we getting where we want to be, what are we doing. The idea is to take kids completely through the Bible five or six times from the time they're in diapers till they graduate from high school. And each time you go through, you, you unpack things a little more, add more detail, helping them, them to think, and especially as they get a little older into elementary school and, um, and, and later elementary school, junior high and high school, begin to unpack for them ideas related to worldview, thinking in terms of the contrast between a divine viewpoint worldview and a human viewpoint worldview. What are the characteristics of the things that 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 are being that they're learning from their peers, from the media, from their teachers that are in contrast to what the Word of God teaches? And so the idea is to train children to think biblically, so that by the time they get up into especially the high school age, when they start hearing different ideas presented to them in the classroom, they can identify them as Marxist, socialist. They can identify them as Darwinian, New Age, whatever it is, and therefore they are prepared uh, to, to block these ideas because they've already been taught the issues and they are intellectually engaged with the kind of stuff that is being thrown at them uh, in the classroom. Now, an important thing for understanding the Scriptures, I've said, is going back into the Old Testament. We have to understand the concept of sacrifice as it's laid out in the Old Testament. 
And we will do that in just a minute. Then we come to the next phrase. And the next phrase says, Worthy are you because you were slain and have redeemed us. See, the slaying of Jesus wasn't just this criminal action because they thought he was a radical uh, rebel against Rome. It wasn't just that he had to die. He had to die a certain way. He couldn't have just had a heart attack and paid the penalty for sin. He couldn't have just been uh, run over by a chariot and paid the penalty for sin. There had to be a penal death. There had to be a particular kind of death that uh, took place. And he was slain for the purpose of redeeming us to God by means of his blood. And the word there translated redeemed is the aorist uh, active voice of agorazo. Now, spazo, uh, that we looked at just a second ago, was in the passive voice. Passive voice means that the subject receives the action of the verb. See, Jesus was slain because he was the victim of the injustice of the Romans and the Jews. The trial was completely illegal according to uh, both uh, uh, Mishnaic law and rabbinical law as well as, as Roman law. But that, uh, that's a whole nother study. He was slain. He receives the action of that verb, but redemption is in the active voice, which means he performed the action of redemption. Now, what does that word mean? That word means to buy or purchase something. That is the core semantic meaning of redemption. It means to pay a price. It means the idea of of, of uh, redeeming something or purchasing something. Some of you are old enough to know when you uh, used to uh, collect stamps, and they had bonus stamps and S&H green stamps and I don't know what what else they had, but you would go to these places called redemption centers, and when you collected enough books of stamps, you'd go in and you could buy all kinds of stuff, just turn in your stamp books, and that was the redemption center. It has the idea of buying or purchasing something. Now, when you get into the New Testament, there are a number of different words that are used in the New Testament for redemption. And each one of these words focuses on a slightly different aspect of this act that takes place on the cross. See, redemption isn't simply that Christ paid the penalty. There's more to it than that. And it, whenever you would use the word redemption with somebody like Paul or Peter, it would bring up into their mind various pictures from the Old Testament. Same thing with any Jew. If you use the term redemption, it automatically brought into their head various ideas, images, events that had taken place in the Old Testament. So this morning I want to begin with a study of the doctrine of redemption, trying to understand this whole idea. To do so, we have to start with an understanding of the problem. Why does man need to be redeemed? What is the function of this payment, this purchase price? And it starts with an understanding of sin. If we don't understand sin, you can't understand salvation. If you don't understand the depths of sin, you don't understand the complexities of what happened when Adam disobeyed God, then you can't understand the complexities of what God does when he saves you. That's why when people have a low view of sin, they have a, they have a somewhat diluted view of what takes place at salvation. 
And what takes place at salvation is a top-to-bottom, inside-out transformation that the Apostle Paul describes as becoming a new creature in Christ. It is so radical, so complex, so uh, extraordinary that for to, to even think that it's reversible is beyond comprehension. The only reason you think it's reversible is because you don't understand the nature of sin. Sin entered into the human race as a result of a decision that Adam made in the Garden of Eden. Eve made the same decision, but she wasn't the determinative person. Adam was the determinative person. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, he had created one particular tree known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said to Adam, you can eat from the fruit of any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Hebrew construction there is the use of a cal verb with a cal infinitive absolute, which stresses certainty and immediacy. If we were to write it today with a computer, you would put an exclamation point and boldface and maybe even increase the font size uh, a little bit just to make sure people understood the the emphasis there. But in the ancient world, you did emphasis with grammar. So we don't understand these things today, but the, gr- the grammar was clear that it was something that would definitely, specifically, certainly happen the instant that he ate from this fruit. Now, people have come up with all kinds of crazy ideas as to what that fruit was, uh, there are some that think that the fruit was a metaphor for uh, you know, sexual activity, but God had already told them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, so it can't be that, not if you're interpreting the Bible literally. I was told this morning that there are those who think that the, uh, the real sin there was gluttony. It must have been a lot of fruit. <laughs> Other people get the idea that, well, because he was going to die, maybe it was poisonous. That was the idea. The idea was is Adam going to trust God and obey God, or is he going to try to interpret the creation on his own, independently from divine authority, and become his own authority in in place of God? That was the issue. It's an innocuous act to eat a piece of fruit. I I would guess that a number of you had fruit this morning for breakfast. It's an innocuous act. It's not something that would enter into uh, most people's list of, of the top ten evil sins that you could commit. And yet this was the most evil sin ever committed in human history because it not only affected Adam, it, infected the enti- it affected and infected the entire human race. It affected all of creation. It's not just a spiritual thing. See, this is a common mistake people make. They think sin is just spiritual. It just affected Adam's relationship to God. There was a breach of that relationship. It led to spiritual death. So so it's just spiritual, isn't it? No, it's not spiritual. It led to a number of different consequences. Well, let's go back there for just a minute. Let me point this out. I'm not going to get very far with uh, redemption this morning, obviously, but I want to make sure you understand this because if you don't, then you can't understand all that's going on in the cross, this whole concept of redemption by Christ's blood that takes place in, in this, this hymn in Revelation 5, 9. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 
14, the Lord begins to outline to Adam and the woman and the serpent what the consequences are for their disobedience. See, they didn't die immediately. Physically, that is. But they did die spiritually. There was a separation between Adam and the woman and God. For when the Lord came in the cool of the day looking for them, they ran and hid. That indicated that that separation was already there. That's in verses uh, 8 and 9. And they are completely exposed. And so God begins to outline the consequences. And first he talks to the serpent and says, You are cursed more than all cattle. Now, I've exegeted that in the Hebrew in the past, and when he says you're, you're cursed more than the cattle, it, he didn't say uh, you're cursed and the cattle aren't. See, the implication there is that the cursing on the serpent was to a greater degree than that which the cattle uh, felt. You see, the, the, the cursing, and the word cursing in Genesis has to do with the judgment of God. It's not like some ju- juju black magic voodoo curse. Okay, it's, this isn't witchcraft. This isn't the occult. This, the idea has to do with the, the carrying out of a judgment from the justice of God. And so what God is saying is as a result of this spiritual decision of rebellion on the part of the man, that all of the animal creation is affected and changed. It's not just the fact that Adam can't appreciate spiritual things anymore and our fellowship is broken. It's that the animal world is now going to be different. There will be conflict. There will be uh, violence now within the animal kingdom. You are cursed. The serpent is going to be cursed more than the cattle and more than every beast of the field and then describes his consequences that he will uh, travel around on his belly on the scuts of the serpent. And then in verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between, between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. This is the first indication that there will be a salvation, that there will be the seed of the woman that will be at enmity with the uh, seed of the serpent. And this, of course, is played out on the cross and again in the book of Revelation. Uh, verse 16, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In other words, now there's going to be an element of sadness, an element of pain in childbirth. But prior to the fall, the man, the woman were to multiply and fill the earth, and there would have been no pain in childbirth and carrying out the plan of God. There would have been no difficulty. But now in carrying out any endeavor of God's in the, in the world, there's going to be physical pain. And so Adam's sin didn't just have this effect on the spiritual realm. It affects the uterus and everything involved with that in every woman since Eve. So you see, it's not just a spiritual thing. It affected the animals, and it affects the whole procreation system and biology of the woman. In pain, you'll bring forth uh, children, and then in a sinful way you will desire, that is, you will want to control and dominate your husband. The Hebrew word there is only used a couple of times in the Scripture, and it has to, it's not a desire in terms of lust. I know that upsets some men because they want to make sure their wife really desires them sexually, but it means that your, your wife wants to dominate you and control you and wear the pants in the family. 
And that's the idea in the next chapter when God uses the same verb to warn Cain that, uh, that sin wants to dominate you. Same word. So this isn't a good thing. Remember, this is a judgment saying this isn't something positive. This is something negative. And then to Adam, he says, uh, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. So the ground is now cursed. The earth is cursed. Uh, all, of, all, of, all of creation is, comes under judgment because of Adam's sin. The ground is now going to uh, bring forth thorns and thistles rather than keeping the garden where there was no problem. See, Adam never had to pull a weed before. He'd just go out and plant seeds and things would grow and he didn't have to worry about rainfall, all of that stuff. Everything was great, but see, now that all changes. Now he's going to have to deal with what meteorological cycles. He's going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. There's going to be antagonism between creation, nature, the agricultural cycle, and, and man. So there's now a conflict there. And so we come to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we have a recognition of this. The reason I'm laboring on this is there's so many people today who think that have this, this narrow, limited, shallow, superficial view of what happens with sin. Sin is extensive and damaging to everything in the universe. That spiritual death, it relates to Adam, but it has consequences throughout all of all of the universe. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. He personifies nature here and says, see, creation looks forward to the coming of Christ and the manifestation of the church in glory. That's what he means by the revealing of the sons of God. For explanation, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, to emptiness. The creation was, when did this happen? Not when it came from the hand of God, but when Adam sinned. It wasn't willingly, it wasn't on the part of the creation, but because of him who subjected it and hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. In other words, all of creation suffers consequences because of sin. So the redemption that Christ is going to pay not only solves the sin problem for man, but it lays the foundation for what the Bible calls the future redemption of creation. And when we get into our study of redemption next time, we'll see that the word is used numerous times in the New Testament not to refer back to what happened at the cross, but to refer forward to that which occurs when Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, as the future King of kings and Lord of lords, comes to the earth, and that is when the earth is redeemed, and redemption is not just a, a past event related to the cross, but is a future event related to the king, the lamb, the lion of Judah, coming to destroy the enemies of God, 
Satan taking control of planet Earth and bringing it into the kingdom and beginning to roll back the curse eventually completely with the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So redemption is not a narrow concept related to the cross. The cross is the foundation, but this term brings in all of history from the fall in Genesis chapter 3 through the Exodus all the way through the Old Testament to the cross where the price is paid and to the ultimate sealing and completion of the transaction when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. And we'll begin to look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we can study your word and come to such a great appreciation of what the Lamb of God did for us on the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sins. There he died as our substitute, so that by trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. Scripture says that all we have to do is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Nothing else is involved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of ritual. It is simply trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, that he paid the price for us. We were redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without spot or blemish. He paid the penalty in full so that we can never add to it. And all that we can do is simply accept it as a free gift. Right now, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. Right where you sit, you can decide whether or not you're trusting in Christ for eternal life, trusting in Christ for the payment of your sins. And at the instant you realize Christ died for you and that you are trusting in him alone, at that instant, God the Father and his omniscience knows what you're relying upon. And at that instant, you receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. You're declared just. You're regenerated. You're given eternal life, which can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each person here to make that decision. And if they already have, then the issue now is to live in light of that redemption. For as Paul says to the Corinthians, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own, but God's. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.